All right. Uh, Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to another episode of Me and a Bunch of White Girls. We are, we got 12 episodes into the season. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and just so all of you know, it's going to end soon. <laughs> I've decided we're wrapping season one up in a month. So please stay tuned. Please keep listening. Please subscribe. Um, and today for the episode, I am joined by my darling friend, Janet. Hi. Janet and I met, oh my God, three, four years ago. Five. Five? Yeah. Oh my God. Four and a half. Four and a half. Fine. Four and a half. <laughs> it's four and a half years ago. Um, at my very first job in Washington, D.C., um, it was, if you have listened to Randy's episode, which I believe is episode seven, mm. um, we talk a little bit about this place where we worked. Um, basically an incredibly toxic work environment. Incredibly and, so. Right? And I met Janet there. <laughs> so it's weird because it's like, clearly I've made some amazing friends through this place. Like, forever lifelong friends, but then I left as soon as humanly possible. (laughs) You were one of the first. Yeah, I was, I think I was third. Oh, that's right. I think it was third. In the, the, like, you know, second wave of that place, I was third to go. We we do have to qualify the waves. We do. We do. This first wave was pre-us. Yes. We were the second wave. Yes. Then there was a third wave, and they're on their fourth wave. <laughs> There's not much left for a fourth wave. Fourth ripple. <laughs> That's, it, it dried up. <laughs> it's a trickle. Small stream. <laughs> the fourth trickle. <laughs> the fourth wave is a first trickle. <laughs> yes. That's how we'll define it. So Janet uh, works in international development. Um, has been doing that for six years? About, yeah. Um, I mean, it's really interesting because I still work in the field that I went to school for in undergrad. Yes. Yes. So I don't know. How do you qualify something like that? I know. Do those years, I've been looking um, at jobs recently just for fun. Don't get worried. <laughs> Anyone who I work with listening is just for fun. Um, right? Just, just stay abreast of what's out there. The skills I may need. The need for a salary scale. Yes. That is so important, actually. I became very active on Glassdoor recently for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, I just take a look every now and then at Glassdoor for salary comparison to see if like the skills I am building are actually being sought by companies I would want to work for. Being a responsible adult, yes. You know, just doing those things, becoming a reg at being an adult. Yes. Um, so yeah, um, I think it's great that you can, because I, I do too, like what I studied in school, I do for a living. I think it's great if you can count that in your history. I think we should. And and you're lucky to be able to do some, like something that's related to your degree. And I fully recognize that I'm luckier than most. Both of my degrees actually count. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what was your first degree, your undergraduate, undergraduate degree in? So I studied psychology 
with a focus on early childhood development. And then um, part of the degree was also in international development, uh, international politics, and languages. I love learning new languages. And then for grad school, I decided to just build on it. I I focused on education courses um, with my development degree. And now I work in international education. So a combination of everything. <laughs> you did a great job. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Weaving a career. <laughs> um, so you've been in D.C. almost this whole time with me. Yes. Hanging out. Watching Downton Abbey. Lots of that. <laughs> I'm still obsessed with it. I'm waiting Same. for the movie. Same. Oh my God. Which okay. we're all going to see together. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Just obsessed with British people for some reason. I don't know if that's good or bad. There's uh, nothing wrong with that. I mean, one of our favorite people is. That is there. true. That is true. So yes. I'm just going to own it. And I've actually never been to England. You know, but a friend, a mutual friend of ours is trying to convince me to do a, like uh, uh, English manor home tour. <laughs> I hope there's an extra seat on that. Yes, because okay. of all the books that I read, which we'll get into another time. But um, <laughs> yeah, she's like, you should totally do this with me. And I'm very down. My wallet isn't as down, no. but I'm down. So I just got to get to the, my wallet needs to catch up with us. Yes. And then we're there. <laughs> Yes. But yeah, so we've been in D.C. this whole time, and we had like a pre-chat to this chat. Um, and one of the things, like, I've, I've known you for a number of years now, and it wasn't until recently, like in the last two, two and a half-ish, that I realized what was going on with you medically. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Like, I didn't know any of it when we first met. I mean, it's not really something that I put out publicly. I won't hide it. But I, yeah, I have several chronic illnesses. And the issue with chronic illnesses um, beyond just racial uh, ties is that illnesses can be invisible. And they're really, really hard for people to talk about because you look normal, you fit in, people judge you as if you're normal, and then to have to qualify everything about your Mm -hmm. disease. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. So over the course of finding out everything that you've been going through, Mm -hmm. I realized how much time you spend at medical facilities. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which, so on on the average week, how many times are you, how many hours do you spend in a medical facility, doctor's office, doctor's appointments, any clinic, anything like that? So when it's not a difficult week, mm-hmm. I can spend anywhere from two to four hours at a hospital. If I am sick or if I'm not feeling particularly well, it can be anywhere from six to ten and you actually know me through several hospital stays at Mm -hmm. this point yes yeah so it gets really exhausting even though you're lying in a room nothing really to do except sit there it's just it's mentally taxing yes yeah yes so it's hard it's a little different and through that experience like i know 
that, especially in D.C. Like, I like to think of D.C. as, like, the super diverse city. We're an outlier, right? Mm. Because I look around and I have such a diverse group of friends and coworkers and, you know, people who live in my apartment. But I actually was recently talking to a coworker, a black woman, about um, her experience at a dermatologist, her recent experience at a dermatologist's office. Mm. It's sort of a larger pra- practice, but their local office, um, she was trying to find like a black dermatologist within this practice. Right. Couldn't find one. Right. Trying to find a person of color dermatologist within this practice. Couldn't find one. Tried to find a woman dermatologist in this practice. Could not find one. The entire practice was white men. You're kidding. Mm-mm. And I was shocked because I was like, okay, I know this city has more diversity than that. And, like, even at the professional level, like, you know, going down, like, mm-hmm. I've, see, I've seen it. I was like, how, how does that even still happen? Right. Have you found that a lot of the medical spaces you're in are predominantly white? They're predominantly white, but even more than that, it seems the more specialized you get, the mm-hmm. more male mm-hmm. the specialty gets. Mm-hmm. Um what I have noticed is that it's usually a white man, 40s to 50s. That's when you get to be respected in your career. Mm-hmm. And until you reach reach that point, you don't get that. And I, I understand that because so much specialization requires schooling. <laughs> And to be able to afford that schooling, um, to be able to afford to take the time to apply and actually move forward with that schooling, like, that is a privilege. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes a privilege allotted to white people, oftentimes allotted to white men. Right. Because there's people to take care of everything else if it, you are. Exactly. They can have... White. Exactly. It's easier for them to, like, get married and have children or just have children during that time span because they're not expected Mm -hmm. to do as much labor emotionally and physically for those children as opposed to like their female counterparts would Mm -hmm. be. Um, And then one thing that we've started talking about on the show, like the racial implications of all that and how like there are different expectations Mm -hmm. in the black community for caring for family and different expectations in the Mexican community for caring for family, and the different expectations in Chinese community for caring for family. <laughs> like, you're expected to show up in ways that means that you have to sacrifice in other areas of your life. Right. But I think even Asians, and surprise. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Look, you guys knew a little bit. You knew this was coming. <laughs> A little different from your past guests. (laughs) But I think, yeah, for Asians, we have very different racial expectations um, from other communities, but also within the community. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I agree, women tend to bear the mental load unconsciously a lot more than men. And even when it's an Asian community where men and women sometimes out 
make white counterparts, it's still not an equal division at home. Mm. It's a disparate expectation. So going back to like the things you've experienced in doctor's offices, multiple. Multiple. (laughs) So what have been some of the most like egregious things you've heard been done to you or said around you? So I think what's really interesting is um, the first microaggression is, how do you say your name again? Mm. Gao, gao, guo. Is that right? Did I say it right? That sounds familiar. Yeah. (laughs) So um, that sets me off immediately on a bad footing because Mm -hmm. then I have to say, oh, no, you're fine. Because I don't want to go into explaining tones in Asian cultures, in Asian languages. I don't want to explain that there's only certain people that call me by my name. Mm. And the fact that I actually have a white name that you can use and I will answer to, but no one ever reads it on my chart. Mm. I have it. I write it down on my chart and I make sure that it's in everything because my thing is that I don't want you to try to say my name. I don't want you to butcher it. That's my name. Mm And that's why I got my white name. (laughs) To keep you all from screwing it up. Wow. Mm. And they still do it. And they still do it everywhere. And for the longest time, there was this running joke at my nurse's office. And it wasn't always the white people because the nurses are all like multiracial, very diverse. And I was known as Miss G-U-O. Because I refuse to ever just pronounce my name. I just spell it out. So so were these like instances that like you kind of do one off? Or was it every time you would see the same doctor oh, or the same nurse's time? Thing? Yeah. And but like, to be fair, nurses at doctor's hospitals change. Change out all the time. That's but true. my doctors still haven't learned this. And I've had them for what, five years that yeah. we've been here now. Yeah. So... It's it's interesting. So that's the first step. And then you get in and you talk to the specialists and you're establishing care in the beginning. You give them your history. And to have to qualify every decision I've ever made. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of background is my parents are doctors. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad is a cancer researcher. And my mom's also in uh research, genetic therapies, and all of that. So we have an understanding on a far deeper level than most patients ever get. And we choose the medical path that is the best for me um, based on everything that we know from both uh, Western literature and Eastern literature. And then I have to usually qualify, well, I chose not to use that medication because in patients of a Chinese background, which I can always get access to that kind of research, this medication doesn't work as well. Mm. And then they don't believe you. They go, well, I've never heard that. And they'll sit on Google right in front of me. searching for this piece of literature that they wanted to disprove what I've just said. So the immediate reaction is to disprove it, not to not to not to believe learn me, more. Not to learn more. It's 
oh, there's no way that they, they would ever say something like that. And I think it's it's hard for doctors to realize that there is this inherent bias mm-hmm. in medicine. Medications are tested for what they think is a diverse population, but usually not diverse enough. Mm-hmm. And sometimes not even with the race recorded. So it's... Mm. Yeah, it's a missing piece of literature. And being able to have access to research that is directed toward my own race, I think gives me a leg up in my advocating for my patients' rights yeah. that not all patients have. That's true. I think this conversation like comes up a lot because it has come up more often because um, I think people are willing to have a bigger conversation about it. And it's come up mostly where I've seen it in black maternal health Mm. um, and the rates of maternal mortality Mm -hmm. um, for black women are significantly higher than they are for white women. Right. I'm wondering if the, if the lack of education on our doctor's point is, is that because one, you're, you've said, like, a lot of studies are mostly either, quote-unquote, race-blind or on done on white people as mm-hmm. the, like, standard base. But is that something that even doctors know? You know what I mean? Like, is that just study-wide and, like, here's the information from our study, like, say shit to your patients <laughs> based on that thing, and they don't even know what's what's really going on behind this study? Or is there just like the same expectation that like it was done on white people and white people's bodies are, white bodies are enough to get to the crux of the problem? (laughs) Yeah. So I think there is a growing recognition that the research is lacking, that it's not being recognized and there needs to be more. Personally, um, in the last five year span, since I've said this, the first time to my doctor, mm-hmm. um, I have noticed that there is a medication I used to take that now has a warning label that specifically says if you are Asian American, you need to make sure to speak to your doctor because you will require different dosing. And mm-hmm. that is the new advancement that I found in the last two years. But only in the last two years. Are your for, doctors paying attention to for that? that medication? Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I make I make them aware at this point because I know for a fact that there are certain uh, treatments that work, certain remedies that don't work, and certain ones. I had one medication that they kept recommending from the time that I got diagnosed, and that was about 10 years ago. And they said, you need to take this. It's been shown to have great results. And I always, like, you know, I decided to go a different route because it wasn't a step I was willing to take yet. When I graduated from undergrad, my um, I took a year off and went to go teach in China for a year. And I saw Chinese doctors for the first time for this illness. And they said, oh, I'm really glad that you didn't take that medication because in Asians, it's been shown to have very detrimental side effects to brain function. Wow. And the fact that my doctor, one, never realized, or two, never warned me, 
I I lost all trust when I came back. Yeah. I established care with a completely different doctor in a different city from a different system because I feel like that's a really basic step that they should have known. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And at least, like, looked it up. Yeah. Like, Although I will say... Just to I, be sure. Right. So when I told this to my new doctor after I came back, he was like, I have never heard of this. Are you sure? And mm-hmm. I said, yeah. This is this is a very prominent researcher in China. And you're not going to say anything that will make me believe that you have a better education than he does. Mm-hmm. So... It's hard to convince all my doctors, and I have to go through this every single time I establish care. But now I've gotten to the point where my doctor at least recognizes this is a new medication. Before I recommend it to her, I'm going to look up everything I see. Yes. Well, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) Freaking finally. Freaking finally. But it's one doctor out of like four, five that I see on a regular basis. So, Wow. I know. That's crazy. Yeah. And think of the ones that she she or he works with that are not getting this message for their patients. So. Because they, and that's the other piece of this. Like, when you feel empowered to speak, like, you can actually save your life. Mm -hmm. And not enough people feel that. So, like, mm-hmm. now I want to know, like, how do we elevate, like, knowledge of patients' rights to begin with, that you have them, that you don't have to do and listen to? Because, I, I mean, even when I was most recently at the doctor's with my mom, when she was having surgery, uh, she was having a hip replacement, and she was, like, in a really, really bad way. Mm-hmm. And I think me and my dad just wanted her to have it mm-hmm. as soon as possibly, as soon as possible so that she could feel better. And she had an anesthesiologist who, my mom has really small veins, as do I. One of the reasons why I hate needles, because I've been <laughs> poked so many times. Yes. And my mom has too, and she has like trauma from really bad experiences. So this anesthesiologist, she told me, she's like, I have like, you know, tiny veins. It's mm-hmm. going to take you a minute. Um, and he didn't use like a very small needle. Um or I think he used, like, the smallest needle for an adult, which he probably needed, like, a pediatric needle to start mm-hmm. and then switch it out with a bigger one. Right. Um, and he didn't do that. And my mom was immediately, like, no surgery today. Yeah. Like, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel like this person did not listen to me when I said. And me and my dad were so angry and frustrated. And that moment, I, like, instantly forgot everything that I knew. Mm-hmm. Because I just wanted her to get better so badly. But she was right yeah. in that moment to turn it away. And her doctor came in and said the same thing. Like, don't feel. And her doctor uh, was a person of color. Right. And the anesthesiologist, I think the nurse helping was also white. I don't remember. But the anesthesiologist was a white man. Mm. Um, and he was like, no, no, like rubbing her shoulder, like, it's me, now, you're fine. Mine's okay. Like, don't worry about it. I'll just get you in there. Right. And I was like, oh, you're not helping. <laughs> you and your white face are making this a lot worse. You don't even know. Mm-hmm. Like, and my mom was just automatically done. She was like, no more conversation. You have, I'm not having surgery today. I'm so proud of her. <laughs> I mean, it took me years to arrive at this point. Yeah. 
like I'm I'm that person that'll walk in and say no she's not gonna do my blood draw Mm -hmm. because I know for a fact that not many people can get it and there's already a nurse I know who indulges (laughs) me but yeah I have tricky veins and I will say so I will say you will not use that needle you will use this one um you're not going to put me in this type of chair. You're going to put the vein, like the blood draw exactly mm-hmm. where I tell you. Mm-hmm. It, it takes a while, but you really have to stand up. Yeah. You know? And I think there has to be a, a broader, bigger, more noticeable conversation on that point. Like, I think mm-hmm. we've gotten to the point where we realize that some of our doctors do not know everything. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to People of color, they know even less. (laughs) And yeah, good, great. We got to that point. Now it's to the next step. Like, what do we do about it? How do we ensure our safety when we go to the hospital? Right. It's like a messed up thing to think about. But if you don't, you could die. (laughs) Because half the things that they're doing is to protect themselves legally. It's not necessarily medical, medically necessary to perform half the things that they do Mm. and that's what I've learned from the last few years of advocating for myself is do I really need that and is it something that I will recover from easily Mm. Um, even more than just racially if your doctor doesn't understand the the different nuances of every illness they will also make mistakes Mm -hmm. and I've spent weeks in a hospital because someone forgot to consult my chart and forgot that there was something else that interacted badly with something that they gave me and it's I tried to fight the hospital on it but legally otherwise they don't care yeah it's to cover the doctor's ass the well, the hospital's ass. ass. Then the doctor. The doctor comes second. Sorry, <laughs> the doctor. Doctors. You gotta cover your own ass. I'm sure right. with your money, you can figure out how to cover your own. Ass. Get your own malpractice suit. <laughs> wow, that is so. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really. I mean, it's kind of funny. In no other profession, the person that comes in last, that graduates, is still a doctor. We trust them with our lives. Yeah. And I think it's because of that expectation that, like, you've done more education than I have. Mm -hmm. But if that education is Eurocentric or westernized only or harping and focusing and, you know, jizzing all over studies... (laughs) that focus on white bodies right like what good is it to a growing segment of the population you know what i mean it's not like oh people of color in that little corner like we are a growing demographic Mm -hmm. as like a giant body and then individually we're growing right so what does it look like when the majority of the country's doctors don't know how to appropriately treat treat the majority of the country. Right. Yeah. That's fucked. <laughs> I mean, if you think it like in a larger scale, 
I mean, I guess the hope would be like more studies would focus on people of color mm-hmm. and would neutralize like the race blindness of them and be like, no, 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 no. We're being very specific here so that you know how to get dosage right or know how to prescribe the right kind of medicine. Right. Or paying attention to research that's coming out from developing countries where the dominant population is yeah. not white. Yeah. Like, we shouldn't be discounting research that comes out of Africa, research that comes from LMICs, just because, you know, they're not the supreme of a Western developed hospital yeah. that had millions and millions of doctors of or dollars of funding. Okay, so you mentioned LNICs. What are those? <laughs> I, forget, that mean? <laughs> I forget that we don't all speak in alphabet soup. We do not. We do not. <laughs> I mean, I like people think, because I hang out with you guys so much, I know international development stuff. I, do, I know that that is an international development term. Yes. That's about it. <laughs> yes, so that's lower middle income economies or countries. Okay. And um, that includes countries like Angola, Ghana, mm-hmm. Honduras, India. You think of any country that we don't put in the north, so mm-hmm. North America, Europe, mm-hmm. things like that. Okay. Yeah. All right. This is such an interesting point because I feel like we should have been there to a certain degree already because of how... I mean, we live, in my opinion, in, like, a very globalist economy. I feel like people would, like, that's giving, well, I'm giving white people and, like, white institutions of higher learning, like, a lot of credit. (laughs) Like, I feel like they should have already been doing this. (laughs) But, like, clearly they wouldn't. Right. Because there's still that, like, superiority complex. And And medical schools in particular, they are, you know, the the highest of the high. They're well protected. And... Yeah, I think I think the conversations opening around race now have started to push these things to the forefront, but they're not going to work fast enough. We need to be starting that conversation sooner, more directly, more forcefully, not just from the racial perspective, but from a patient advocacy perspective. Yeah. Um, and I would really love to see that conversation evolve for all different types of minorities you know, soon we're going to be outnumbering all the white people that these research studies were based on. And, you know, we're already in a society where healthcare is not made to work for everyone else. Mm-hmm. And how how much further does that service fall yeah. once we reach that point where That's true. minorities are the norm? So when you're at the doctor's office and you're dealing with the other three to four doctors who are not listening to you, like what has been part of like their training on your part to get them to where your other doctor is now they're automatically looking at the information and making sure it's going to fit with you based on the chart Mm -hmm. that you have. Right. How are you training your other doctors to do the same? Like, what are you saying to them? Because I feel like we need to hear it. Yeah. um, I mean, I will say I don't have much of an advocacy background, but I 
advocate for myself and I do my research. When they tell me about something new, I automatically look up what the implications are for a person of my race. And I make sure to tell them when there are specific things that happen. Um, I will call up my doctor and say, this was not the correct dosage. Can we talk about a new one? Can we talk about this option that I found? And fortunately, I have a family that can understand all of these terms, <laughs> jargon, um, and they can explain it to me well enough that I know what to advocate for. Yeah. But I feel like not, not everybody has that access. So sure. really just try to be as far informed as possible. And if not, you know, asked outright. I've, I've had doctors, and this is on a larger scale, I've had doctors not believe that I have an illness when I know for a fact that I do. And they will say, well, I did the tests on this, and it clearly doesn't show that you have this illness. And I, I have to say, you know, the markers for Asians are on a different level. Um, these are the actual markers. And that's the only point um, at which they recognize, okay, maybe I do need to go back and look. Hmm. So you have to be like... I have to be very well informed, and it falls on me. That's so annoying. I make this joke that every time I see a doctor, I, there's a training period for the doctor. Yes. And... I, I actually hate changing specialists, no matter how unhappy I am with the system. Mm -hmm. But once you have a doctor trained, it is like gold. That's true. That's like the ideal. Right. Damn. Damn. I know. I learned so much. This is like... (laughs) I'm like, wait. I need to take notes. Because, I mean, I don't like going to the doctor very much. Mm -hmm. Not even because of this reason. I just... I don't like hospitals. Um, Yeah. But knowing that the older I get, mm-hmm. the more I'm going to need from a healthcare provider. Right. Um, and if I ever have children, like, like just all these standards of care that I don't rely on currently, right. I'm going to need mm-hmm. very, very badly at a and, certain point. And yeah. knowing what you already know is like, going to be is going to make the difference in like the doctors that I keep and the doctors I wish away so I don't even get to the point where my life is in danger right and you have to start advocating for yourself to your PCP first mm. and they're actually the level that I found the hardest to get past mm. because PCPs see everybody they yeah. are the first gateway and they're the people who recommend you to certain specialists and it's usually not until you get those to those specialists that they will have that kind of knowledge and expertise mm. but you have to get to the point where you've educated your PCP enough your primary care and then get to the specialist and then educate them as well um, usually when I've been blocked from a certain level of care, it's at my PCP. Wow. Yeah. So request those tests, look it up. Um, when you get the symptoms and, you know, do a Google search. Don't go crazy on WebMD. It's not always right. But, like, present all your systems. Write it down. You're not going to remember in the heat of the moment. And go to your doctor and just be like, I have A, B, C, D. And I've had doctors say, oh, you know, you really know the playbook. I'm like, no, I do my research. 
And I've talked to other specialists and I know for a fact that when this happens, this is what I do because I can't count on you to know what to do. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. So what I do now um, as a part of going forward is actually, I like going to learning hospitals where there's a medical school attached, where there are interns in these settings. And I actually really love it when I get the baby interns and they come in, they look at my child and they're like, oh, okay. It's like, no, no, you get used to this. Let me step out. <laughs> this is what a real chart chart looks like. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's a slow process, but at least there's some kind of movement on the needle in that one place that I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, there's always the first step, right? Yes. So I'm going to go do some more research. <laughs> you guys, I'm not even joking. I'm. This was great. Oh, great. This I'm was so really excited. great. Janet, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was pretty perfect. Oh, great. I'm, I'm very so happy. Um, everyone, if you are listening and you are enjoying this content, this show, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MBWG Podcast and become a patron on Patreon where you will find bonus content with Janet with all the other guests on the show. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for having me.